Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. So let's talk about, um, so Hour of the Bees is yours. You have, yes. you have successfully Woo-doo. laid your claim. <laughs> yep. And we're working together and it's yeah. great. And you are sending me the first oh boy, yeah. letter. Let's talk about the revision process. Okay. This is where I'm going to need you to help me because I do sort of liken it to childbirth where like, I okay, just you forget it. it, forget. No, because, I just, oh, you just forget. Well, because if you remember it, you'll never do I'll it I'll never do it again. It's yeah. so much work. Um, but, um. Yeah. I, so I, it's funny. I will often have authors be like, Oh, remember that time where like this big dramatic, like, you know, edit happened late in the game. I was like, Oh yeah. That rings like a dim bell. You know, I really do like black out a lot of the experience, I think, um, which, you know, maybe it's not the healthiest thing, but it's um, emotional and it's hard and it's, so it makes sense that you do that kind of not trauma, like not trauma with a capital T, but maybe trauma with a little T. Yeah. And there's there's just too many other things. (laughs) I can't, I can't remember them all, but I think, so for B's, you know, I, I sort of have a, a very general, like sort of standard approach to things where it's like, you know, that you zoom way, way out at first. And so the first editorial letter is like all the big picture stuff. Yes. And I try to like break it into categories. That's just how my brain works. So it'll be like, okay, I'll like, you know, the category will be like the main character. And then it'll be sort of like, you know, subcategories of the main character, you know, like these elements specifically. And so I'll have like big categories and then sort of, you know, supporting categories within those. And then as we continue to work, the next letter will be like, now we're zooming in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe there'll be one more like editorial letter pass where we're like really focused on like some specific thing that's not quite working yet and needs to work before we get into the nitty gritty. And then it's like line level stuff. Um, yeah. Which we both love. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do love all of it, but there is something particularly invigorating about the like line level edit. Um, when you really get into like, and especially working with you um, with like the language is just so enjoyable. It's fun. It's yeah. really fun. It's fun um, for sure. and even just getting to know an author through that process, like you're commenting on lines together and sort of, you know, there's banter, there's like silliness. You're like up till the wee hours and you're just sort of like goofing yes. and you just sort of get to know a person, yeah. um, really intimately through working with them. It's true. On those line yeah and I'm I think too like the more I work with you work with you the more willing I am to say no I want it the way I wrote it yeah <laughs> and here's why or I don't have a reason except yep. just it sounds good to my Step. ear yeah and then you and I yeah we just like learn each other's preferences that way not just the preferences but why yeah um I think with the patron thief of bread I almost called it garbled book um <laughs> there was a lot of conversation in the comments about, yeah, I know this isn't like, maybe this sounds weird, but this is how a kid would think it, or this is Mm -hmm. how a kid would say it. So this sounds very little kiddish to me. And I want to keep it that way, even though it's a little awkward. Um, But since you worship voice above all else yeah. you let me keep those Absolutely. you know and you don't fight me on that. and again it's sort of the same way with those brainstorming phone calls where like the fact that you can trust yourself and push yeah. back and stand up for yourself like that frees me to not have to feel like I can only suggest an edit if I know for sure it's a hundred percent right like I, right. an edit is only ever like one person's opinion and obviously right. like, I'm trying to zoom out and imagine like what readers generally are reacting to but it's also like very personal to me and my lens is you know my individual humanness um and so I'm very mindful of the fact that like mm-hmm. I don't know things in the some sort of big impressive way yeah um, I have a lot of experience as a reader and as an editor that said it's still just one person's opinion And so to be free to have those opinions and share those opinions and trust that like, if something doesn't land with you, um, you know, you won't change your book just because I suggested you change it. That's my big fear is always that like someone will just change it because they think I'm right. Um, rather than believing it makes the story better. So do you think like in a way you're basically trying to prompt your writers to have an opinion? Yeah. Like trust themselves. Yeah. And you don't care what it is. You're just like, make a choice one way or the other. It's like, you know, I might be pointing out something that I feel like this isn't quite working. Often I'll give an example just because it's for me by trying to craft an example of like what could go here instead, it helps me home in on like what isn't working. Yes. That said, I don't want my example to be what's in the book, right? Like I don't want my 
fix or yes. edit or words to necessarily be what end up on the page. I want it to prompt something better. <laughs> Can I give an example that I've seen many oh, no. times over the years? Oh, no. Okay. No, this is, this is wonderful. So sometimes in line edits, probably in almost every book that we've written, you'll give an example of like, um, someone should call someone else something and you'll be like, you little twerp, just an example, but like you've used like twerp or, um, I think twerp, you've used twerp, that that's hilarious. word several times or you little, so, but you'll be like, pick something better here, yeah. Yeah. but, or pipsqueak. No, that's the one that you okay. use, not twerp, pipsqueak. You'll be like, what if they insult this person and say like, you little pipsqueak, but use a, a different word other than pipsqueak. You've, you've made that comment several times. And I just know, okay, pipsqueak might be your suggested word, but it's not that you are saying use pipsqueak. Right. You're saying, In fact, please don't. <laughs> I think I have lots of, it's a great word. It is a great word. It is a great word. Um, But if it doesn't fit in with that character or that voice, then you're just suggesting we need that kind of emotional beat here. Here's an example of what you could use, but don't. Right. Find your own. Anything but this. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Find something better. But no, that's good. And that is, I mean, that requires vulnerability on your part um, in a way that like, I think writers have to like feel vulnerable this way all the time, which is absolutely offering your perspective, your idea of way the, the way the world works, your understanding of the word pipsqueak to be an insult. Like it does require you to be vulnerable that way and share sort of your worldview. Yeah. And that's where I say you get to know someone really well through those edits. You know, it's just a surprisingly revealing process. Um, and I think I've, yeah, grown very close to all of my authors mm-hmm. certainly by that stage if not before then because yeah. that process is just so intimate um and yeah yeah revealing. yeah well oh go ahead did you have something oh I was gonna say I think it's really interesting for writers to also know that it it's helpful for you if they push back yeah. because again I think that a lot of times writers are under the impression that the editor almost like there's a hierarchy, like the editor knows a bit more than they do, or the editor's more likely to be right than they are. Or and the editor hired the writer to do a job. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like it feels, it feels like there's a bit of a power dynamic and the writer sometimes feels like they have to give in to whatever the editor says, or they have to agree. But to actually, to know that it's, actually helpful for you when when writers push back and say actually no I don't want it that way I wrote it this way for a reason that's really empowering I think for authors to know and that's you know I'm I'm very aware of that um dynamic and I try very hard and very deliberately through my the way I craft my comments um it's every time I make it you know it's like or some such, you know, yes. maybe it's like this, or like, this is a very rough example. There's ex- like, I, I go to extremes to like reiterate, like you this is a choice. This way. is just a suggestion because one of, you know, even just seeing um, sometimes like our copy editors, for example, have different styles of working. And many of them will sort of, when they're, when they're making like language changes that aren't just correcting a typo or an actual error, um, will query, you know, and phrase it as a question or a suggestion. And sometimes individuals, their, their style is very different and they'll just change it. And I'm like, is this because it's wrong? Like, I don't, you know, like I need to know, even as the editor, like, is this, for is this low? Right. Or is, is this, this wrong? For- or is this just, do you think it sounds better to me? That's a very different thing. And so I try to make it very, very clear to my authors. Like, this is just a suggestion. Right. This is not because what you've done is wrong or bad. Um, and if my, if you agree that what's there isn't quite working and my suggested fix doesn't feel right to you by all means, please fix it in a different way. Like that's the real payoff is when you point out something that's not working and the author fixes it in a way you didn't necessarily anticipate because that's, that's what they bring to the relationship is like that gift and that ability to, to craft the language to know the characters even more than you know them. So, um, I, I'm very aware of, especially with debut authors, you know, and I, I say it over and over again in the comments, in the letter that I send with the comments, you know, like if something doesn't resonate, please, you know, don't feel you have to change it. But I also know that no matter how many times and ways I say it, that power dynamic still exists. And so I think sometimes it does multiple books to really develop that trust where they feel like, oh, wait, you really mean it. (laughs) I really can say no. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard for both parties to trust that. Um, because I think a lot of authors feel like they might have worked for years to get a book deal and now they finally have a book deal and they just want to do everything in their power to be 
easy to work with, nice to work with. I don't, you know, like they just want to be accommodating and they want to, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely feel like that. Like, I just want, I don't want someone to work with me and then walk away going like, oh, she was difficult or she, you know, was like fussy about this or, you know, um, and yeah, you just want to, you just want to do a good job. And I think maybe sometimes authors forget that editors also feel that way. They just want to do a great job and they also care about the book and they also want to impress the author. Yes. Yeah. And I think sometimes for me, the biggest disappointment is when my actual words end up in the book. Oh yeah. Really? I, it makes me very uncomfortable. Like it's, it's very hard. Like I, you know, I, in an ideal world, I feel like I wouldn't even suggest specific like fixes for mm-hmm. things because I do worry, especially with debut authors that like, they're going to, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to say. Like, this is the language you want. Um, and in fact, like I get very, very self-conscious. Like, I feel like I, I'm not actually a writer and I'm not you. And I don't want my words in your book. Like it's, you don't want, yeah, I, don't, I don't actually want pipsqueak in there. Um, and so, you know, if an author feels like that's the best way to say something, okay. Like certainly like you, you can, but that's your yeah. choice, but it makes me very uncomfortable and self-conscious. And I just feel like I'm limiting my authors when mm-hmm. I suggest phrasing. Um, I don't yet know how to do it without like sort of relying on that phrasing. Cause as mm-hmm. I said, like, that's sort of how I articulate even to myself exactly what's not working or exactly like mm-hmm. what could work and what I'm trying to, you know, what I'm driving at. Yeah. But I do, I'm very conscious of the fact that I think sometimes that is limiting. Um, oh, I steal your phrases all the time from comments. And I, and I try to say, thanks. I'm stealing this. <laughs> yeah. And like, this is again, mine now. it's <laughs> fine. And part of my job, as I said earlier, is to channel your voice. You know, I am trying to get in that, the voice of that story. And so hopefully it doesn't stand out to the reader that like, oh, this is where like a sudden jump. But I had an author recently. So it's a new author that I've been working with. Um, and his book's not out yet. And I saw a book of mine from another author, like on his shelf. So I was like, oh, that's so fun. And he's yeah. like, yeah, I could, you know, I could see like where moments in it were like Caitlin. And I was like, oh, that's like my worst nightmare. That's my worst nightmare. I mm-hmm. never want to be a parent on the page. Like that to me feels like I'm not doing a good job as an editor. But like, that's different than just like somebody who's worked with you, who's looking for yes. Caitlin. Yeah. And yeah, this person like knew the process and knew yeah. me so intimately that I think the average reader is not going to detect it. Hopefully, my God, that's that's my worst nightmare, right? Is like the actual, like you know, regular reader who doesn't know me at all is like, oh, someone, someone else helped here, you know, someone else provided this line. Um, so hopefully, that is not usually the case. But to even just know, like, one of my authors could sort of there's some sort of like Kaylinness about a phrase, or you know, it's just mm. that makes me so uncomfortable. Um, I don't want to be me in someone else's book. That makes sense. I didn't ever think about that as a writer. That's so interesting. I also have never thought about that before. You're not secretly trying to steal the spotlight from No, your- I don't like spotlights. Yeah, if someone, I, this is my like big running thing. If someone ever told me like how much public speaking is involved in being an editor, I never would have gotten into it Ooh. because I was like, you're just at a desk, quiet reading. It's, there's so much like that's, that's the perfect I mean, segue. Let's talk about like some of the other, well, actually let's talk about it in a second. Cause I'm okay. going to ask you one more question about sure. the revision process. Unless like Haley, if you have other questions too, like feel free to pop. In. No, I think you can go on to revisions. Um, I know that like every editor has their own sort of process about how they revise. And it, it's also different with every author and every book that comes in. Cause there's some books that require maybe less big picture stuff and Um, But I just wanted to hear from you about why craft wise, Mm -hmm. you think it's important to start with big developmental revisions and then I know this is very obvious and then zoom into line edits, but like, why, why do we do this? Why is this a smart thing to do in general? From my perspective, the, so the rationale behind it is if you, polish up the more time you spend sort of on the language and getting the language just right the more you fall in love with it and it's this Mm -hmm. idea of like killing your darlings and the more attached you are to a specific scene or phrase Mm -hmm. or moment the harder it is to lose that Mm -hmm. and so like before you get to that place of like oh this is exactly how I want it to sound you know to have the flexibility and the ability to, to view like okay but zooming out in terms of what it's doing for your story is this serving a purpose is this exactly the right moment does this come at the right place all of those factors are going to determine, you know, where it falls, whether it even stays in the story at all. Mm-hmm. We've gone through lots of like significant, like 
seismatic revisions. And, you know, if we had really worked on like your beautiful Lindsay language, I, I would actually, I do find myself sometimes, you know, <laughs> just it's hard. Yeah. It's hard things because of the language. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I don't know that this needs to be here, but I love reading it. And so, you know, it helps, you know, to just not have things be that, yeah. <laughs> that perfect and polished at that point. Um, so that you can really focus on what's best for the story. And once you feel like you've got the big pieces in place, um, and then you're looking at the next level. And then once you feel like, okay, this, everything is kind of like where it needs to be yeah. now, let's make it sound exactly right. Um, so I think if you try to do it any other way, you're going to be falling in love with things and lose that objectivity. And even that willingness to shift things mm-hmm. around because I spent so much time like getting, and I love that line and like, oh, yes. and so you're going to try to like shorn it in and, you know, yeah. hold on to it. Um, you know, not everyone will struggle that way, but I think that's sort of the general approach is, is yeah. just, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. We all agree. We all agree. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, that's, it does make sense. And also it makes me think about like another benefit to sending you more raw material is absolutely not getting attached to it and, and seeing mm-hmm. things fall in place on a bigger scale before I start really honing in and polishing language and sentences and pulling things together. Um, what do you think you spend the most time on revisions with your editor or with your authors? Is it like, like big picture stuff? Is it plot holes that you're like trying to plug up leaks there? Is it character development? Like, what is it? Do you think you can generalize like what big picture revisions generally look like? That's a really great question. You know, I bet if I looked at my editorial letters, I would find like patterns and consistency, um, but just trying to think about it. Just make us all feel better about our yeah. Holes, yeah. Please. I mean, so again, because I am so voice driven, um, I am very willing to engage with authors on like, let's fix this plot. You know, like this, mm. this we can do, like, let's, let's get in there and fix this plot. So my assumption then I suppose is that like books that I sign up, um, just okay, sort of- wait, hold Sorry. Let me, so you're saying because if, if a story comes to you, whether it's like a new submission or an author sending you something that is like a book two or whatever, if you love the voice, you're saying you're maybe more willing to look at a, like work on a plot that isn't quite as good. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Or not quite as, right. quite as quote good or quite as polished or developed. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yes. By like, so I think I'm okay. willing to um, invest time in you know, fixing is such a like pretentious, you know, um, but developing, developing yeah. Um, strengthening. yeah, exactly. The plot doing, doing work with an author on the plot. Um, and so my guess would be that a lot of the books that I sign up, um, and perhaps it's true of other editors as well, but just, you know, for me specifically, since I'm not plot driven and I'm not looking for like, oh, that's such a cool plot. And that worked so well. And what a great payoff that was. Um, I probably do a lot of like plot work, as like the bulk of my, I think probably like the character development is a necessary component that's always going to be there. But I would, I would guess that it needs less work because that's the part that like really drew me in and that I felt. And that's so connected with plot anyway too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that I bet like a lot of my big picture work is more plot focused. Um, Because I'm guessing like you can't quote fix voice. Right. Right. As much as you can fix. Right. And you can get into voice, you know, sort of fixing quote unquote, in like the line editing stage, but you have to feel like there's enough like basis of like, right. You can to draw create on. the voice exactly. later. Exactly. You can start from a plot. Pinpoint yeah. moments where like, oh, this doesn't sound like the character. Like this doesn't seem an authentic reaction to me based on everything you've told me about this character for this moment. You know, you can get that sensibility, but that's because there is sort of a consistent, strong character already there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So plot is probably what I spend most of my time focusing on in those big picture edits. That makes sense. What say you? Does that make sense? Yeah, it it definitely makes sense. Yeah. I'm just thinking like, I'm absolutely that kind of writer. Like I'm all about the voice and the vibes and everything. And then plot is so hard. I just find plot so hard. So I need someone to tell me like this plot, like this, it doesn't work. Or this is like, they've been just having conversations for four chapters. It's too slow or, you know. Yeah. How do, how do I string these elements together? <laughs> yeah. I've decided all belong in a book together. Yeah. Yeah. And my agent has also said to me before, like, 
plot we can fix we can fix plot we can build a plot you know like like she she'll be like I love that you send me these crazy ideas and this this world has this atmosphere and these cool characters and the voice and we can make the plot like don't worry about the plot so it's cool to have that teamwork between you guys it you know well and I've seen this firsthand in your books too Haley in that like yeah you absolutely have that voice and those details and those like very visceral sensory atmospheric little components and pieces to a story and I have seen you take those things in in the same story and like mix up the plot entirely and shift it and change it while keeping those elements there which you can do you can mix and match plot plot is overrated and so difficult and also like you can just like jumble things it's like Mm. never-ending building blocks that you can just constantly be reshuffling but you have that natural, um, those nat- like that natural development of those weird sensory elements that all go together. That mm. if you started with a plot and then later tried to add those things, I just don't know if it would it work. Wouldn't work. Yeah, I always feel like plot is the most plot is the thing that I can always rip out and change and rearrange. And but there are other things that if you rip them out, they would the book would be destroyed. Like the heart of the book would be gone. And I think maybe that's what you're referring to, Kaylin, about voice is that it's that special magic in the book that is there that you can't quite explain, that you can't take out. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like the opposite of the elevator pitch, right? Where like all this emphasis on like, okay, mm. boil it down your story, boil it down to a sentence or two. High like, concept. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's just, that's yeah. just never been what draws me to a story. But that's what makes a book a book. I mean, I've ranted about this a million times that I, I, it's, it's always a struggle to read books that feel like they were written to be adapted into a movie. Mm. Um, mm. I want to feel like there's a reason why this is made into literature. There's a reason, there's a celebration of that voice that you can't explain, that you couldn't possibly like transfer in the same way to another um art form or medium without losing some of this and plot yeah like we've said like you can you can lift up a plot from anything and turn it into something else another another art form but that magic voice that justifies why you're using words to tell the story and instead of Mm. a movie or a screenplay or music or whatever or just a list of scenes yeah like there's something that makes it a story versus just a list of cool scenes that could happen one and after the other. A book. A book like, yeah, a book. Exactly. Yeah. Words on a page. Where, you know. Yeah. Mm. Love it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's magical. Now, now I'm going to check and make sure my battery's not that. No, we're good. We all good? We have, I, I want to talk about the other yeah. jobs that editors do. Okay. And then. Yeah. I think. We've got time. I think that's all. And maybe you can, um, maybe while we're talking about that, you could like talk about the other things that you had to do for bees. Like you could use that as an example, if you want to. See if I remember, See even like remember. what I do. That's okay. <laughs> but like really also do. like maybe that's like an inoffensive way to talk about mm-hmm. it. Cause it was so many years really ago. Well, so long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after that, like we can ask the advice question, unless you think cool. that, that we want to cover. You cool. Think- well, I'll let you know if something comes up, but at the moment. I think we've, yeah, we've covered so much good stuff already. I know. It, can you, can you just wait gold, for everybody solid to listen gold to my, my brain is just like, seriously. I know. I feel troubled and better at the same time. As- <laughs> <laughs> <It's accomplished. laughs> That's how I like my authors. Yeah. <laughs> troubled and better. Uh, that's that care work that you do so well. Um, okay. So you mentioned this earlier and we've been talking a lot about it recently. Um, will you talk about some of the other jobs that you have as an editor? Yes. Because you do not, in fact, sit and work on books all day, sadly, although you would love to do that. Love that. It's the dream. It is the dream. So what other things were you responsible for doing, let's say, to get our the bees into right. bookstores? Right. Okay. So first and foremost, like email has made everyone's life so much worse. It's just yes. a constant stream. Um, you know, it replaces, especially, you know, during the pandemic, we're not all in the office together. There's not that walking around to each other. Um, 
it, it's just a constant stream of and like know, what kind of email oh gosh about? all sorts of things so it'll be you know here's the um, the review blast so like Kirk has sent you know the reviews of all their books so we get that from someone in sales or marketing sends us um and it's all of the books of art all the candlebook books that have been reviewed in that issue of mm. Kirk's school library journal book list etc and so then we as editors responsible we open that email we read through find if any of our books have been reviewed you know, excerpt that review, send it to our authors. Some so it's not of, even like linked. You have oh, to like, yeah, look, yeah. like look and decide and then so it's like copy and paste the paragraph, 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 you know, of all the different books. And it's like, okay, this one's a bit, you know, we're going to need some like caretaking here. And, um, or like, you know what, this is particularly <laughs> courtesy. And so we're going to wait until there's like another, like kinder and more humane review and pair them together. You know, there's like this caretaking aspect that we talked about that goes into even just forwarding along reviews or something like that. Um, you're in constant contact as an editor with other departments mm -hmm. about your books, about books that have published five years ago. You know, like your books don't, you're not done with your books once you go into copy editing, you know, you're following them their entire lives. Um, so there might be things, you know, from like deep in the backlist that come up, um, that you're still responsible for corresponding with someone about following up with someone about, um, as I said earlier, there's a lot of public speaking involved in being an editor. Um, so we're not, so we are actually, you know, sometimes going places we might go to conferences. Um, so there's, you know, there's writers conferences like SCBWI and other conferences like that, where, you're going as an individual representing your company and you're in contact there. You're often giving a presentation mm -hmm. uh, and then you're often, you know, like one-on-one -on -one with authors or illustrators. You're doing portfolio reviews. You're, you're reading sample pages and giving feedback on that. And then you're talking and networking and, you know, sitting down every meal you're, you're with people who are eager for your um, advice and experience. And I love that. I find it very, very um, rewarding and, um, grounding to connect with authors at every stage of the process. Um, but there's something particularly invigorating about people who are, you know, starting out and, um, yeah, just are still very, very excited about it. You Little know? cutie. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I, as I said, I could talk about publishing to a willing audience, you know, forever. Sure. So I do like that, but I am also very introverted. And so it's very, very draining. It's a lot of, you know, and like, I'm a very nervous public speaker. So even just preparing a talk when I know there's me, you know, a hundred people listening to this talk, I put a lot of care into it and, um, and recovering and that. recovering from that and, and all of that. So, <laughs> and, the, and the work doesn't stop while you recover. Oh no. Right? Yeah. The work does not kind the of email pause. Is stacking up. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then within your company, you're presenting your titles to your colleagues. So, um, let's take our of the bees, yep. for example. So I sign it up. Um, I don't remember, and you can maybe remind me if there was a marketing plan that was part of the offer. Um, so sometimes when there's an auction, the agent will request a marketing plan. And so that requires you to send the submission to your colleagues in, in marketing. I don't think there was. Okay. These. And so sometimes, yeah, other colleagues will sort of have a sense of, of a book um, because they'll have created a marketing plan for it to help you try to secure it. So colleagues like in the marketing In the marketing department, it'll be on me. their radar. Okay. Not always. Um, right. And so sometimes the first time... Uh, your sales and marketing colleagues are hearing about a book that you've signed up and have already been working on is when you present it at either launch or sales conference. And so these are in-house, um, you know, meetings. Sometimes they're offsite. Um, I think big fancy publishers used to go to like tropical locations and really make oh, a thing wow. out of it. We did not ever do that, but sometimes we'd go to like a hotel in Harvard square and like, you oh. know, um, just get off site and really you're just devoting like two full days to like okay. this is what you're doing and it's a kind of cool experience and it really does elevate I think um yeah. you know the importance of this and so it, you know there's this public speaking component to it you are presenting out loud to you know a room full of like a hundred of your colleagues um and the idea is to get people not only to inform them of the upcoming list so let's say sales conference that's where we present all of the books that are coming up on a given list. And it's about a year before pub. So, so like every editor stands up and is like, here's what's coming up being published next exactly. year that I've been working on. So we'll go through, um, at that point, they're sort of roughly put into months and that might change based on like, once people have a clear sense of like the full list and all of the books that we're going to be doing, like, oh, let's shift these around. Or we have, you know, like there's balancing that has to happen behind the scenes. <laughs> or like if your author finally gets her, her book, <laughs> yeah. her, her there's all sorts of reasons things can shift and move, sure. but so let's say, um, so for example, we've got uh, in December of this year, we'll be presenting our fall 22 books. Mm. So in sort of like the fall slash winter of 21, we're mm. presenting the books that'll publish next fall. 
Um, and so we're getting, we're not only like informing people, these are the books that we're publishing, but we're also meant to be getting people excited about like, here's why, you so know, it's a sales pitch, it's a sales pitch. and it's, it's meant to be a tool to help them. They're going to then go on and read the books themselves, but it's meant to sort of give them the tools so that they can then go and sell the books and get the buyers excited. Like, like get, um, sound bites or, or exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right. So they love behind the scenes stories. They mm-hmm. love hearing, you know, sort of like, you know, where an idea came from. Um, sometimes, you know, we'll hear that, you know, the, the buyer at, let's see, Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. I'm making this up. So I don't know what this buyer's particular taste for. Like they also grew up on a farm. So like they actually really latched on to this anecdote about like so-and-so's story was inspired by growing up on the farm. So like there's just human personal connections that can come from these presentations. So you try to give a sense of not only what the book is about and like sort of where you see it in the market, but also like why you're so excited about it, right. why you signed it up, what you're hoping your colleagues see in the book and what you sort of hope the potential is for the book. Um, so it's a big sort of sales pitch <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of pressure, you know, you love these books and you're presenting all of your books on a given list and you're trying to give each of them that special treatment that like, you know, your team can't sit up and take notice in the same way of not only all of your books, but like then all of your colleagues books as well. So each one Jeez. feels yeah, like you're really trying to like, it's a competition. It's a competition, even among your own books. And that's very, very hard. Um, and also, you know, it's hard, but it's also your responsibility and it's, it's your job to really try to give each one, um, its best chance at getting people to take notice of it. Um, so you're throwing yourself and your heart and soul, like behind these presentations and trying to really, um, yeah, convey your excitement about the book. So there's a lot of pressure there, um, to, to do right by your, by your folks. Um, and that's a lot of email and coordination. There's a lot and... of coordination and preparation. And um, so I have a good friend and colleague um, who <laughs> we're, we, we used to go into like little conference rooms together and like practice our presentations to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or like those, those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, does this sound natural? <laughs> okay, said aloud? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we time them because you have like a specific amount of time to present for like different titles. It's like, this is a three minute presentation. It's like, I can maybe get away with like four minutes, but like five and a half, like no way we're going to find something to trim. Yeah. And-, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of preparation and, and care that goes into preparing for those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that will start, you know, weeks, if not longer mm-hmm. in advance. Um, and yeah, you're, you're in constant contact about, you know, your authors want to go to these conferences and you're coordinating, you know, they want to be on these panel, like just anything however, you know, related to your book, um, that's not even about the actual like editorial aspect of it. Right. You are that sort of in-house mm-hmm. liaison, go between, um, caretaker, yeah. all of that. So, um, any, uh, like almost anything related to your books, you know, is like hitting your inbox yeah. and sometimes it's an FYI, but more often than not, there's like some little aspect or very large aspect of it that you're responsible for or in charge of. Um, so yeah. Jeez. Surprisingly and distressingly like little editing happens like in work hours, you know, like the bulk yeah. of my, especially on novels, the bulk of my work on that happens, you know, after hours, which um, is not good people <laughs> just, just, um, in general, I feel like publishing well editors. Um, I know for sure a lot of like booksellers, um, salespeople, assistants and definitely writers are for sure expected to do a lot of this work outside of normal work hours. And it's, it's not great. I, it just is. It's not great. That said, I will say, you know, sort of shout out to Candlewick. Um, I feel very fortunate to work at a company where there isn't this expectation. I mean, a lot of it is on myself because I choose to sign up these books. And I think if I just decided to never work on a novel again, you know, they're not going to fire me for that. Um, and so it's really like, do I want to give this amount of, you know, myself and my, my home time to this project? Um, and that's a very individual decision that I get to make. There's not the sense of like, who's at the you know office until 10 o'clock. And if you leave, you know, before like, you know, 7 PM, like you're a slacker, there's, you know, this sense of, you have to just be tied to your desk. Like there is, we have a real like nine to five culture. Um, my direct supervisor is very big into like a work-life balance. And that, you know, is also sort of the candlewick approach to things as well. Um, so I think for me, you know, it's, it's something I'm doing to myself, but it's because I love it so much. I really, really love working so deeply on a project. Um, I love working also on picture books and younger books as well, but it's a different 
process. Um, sure. And it's, you know, almost like a bite-sized process um, compared to working on a novel. So um, yeah, yeah, that's a very rambly answer, but no, that's, that's a ton. And there's, so I, I just don't think writers in general understand what you guys do all day <laughs> and, and, and like why sometimes it feels like it takes so long in general I'm not talking about oh you, it you takes are always no you are always so prompt or you will at least like email me and say like oh actually I'm not going to be done reading this until this date but like just for writers to understand like how much is actually on your plate yeah. um and how you know every email that you have to answer and every correspondence that you have to make is exhausting in a tiny way and you add up all of those and then you have to like do the emotional mental labor of editing a book on top of that like I just don't think a lot of writers know that the job of editing is it is not just about the actual editing. You're you're required to do all of this other extra yeah. stuff as well. Well, and submissions are hard too because you know it's obviously a necessary part of the job is to sign up new projects. Um, but because I have so many things already under contract that I'm you know committed to working on, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to justify taking time away from that work mm -hmm. to spend on submissions. Um, and even, you know, we'll get agents who are like, can you just confirm receipt of this? And I completely understand that. And that said, sometimes like just confirming receipt of something, it's like, I might as well respond to it. You know, it's like to, to sort of carve out time. Like I'm going to now focus on this correspondence. Um, you know, the difference between, yeah, like a two minute, you know, confirmation of receipt versus like a five minute, like reading of the query letter and then responding, you know, more specifically based on that. Um, yeah, it sometimes feels just as daunting to like confirm receipt as it does to actually respond yeah. to a query. So, and then if you're like me, you just avoid doing these. You can't <laughs> oh, yes. decide which one to do. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. And the pandemic has made it all, you know, oh, just so much worse, so much worse. And I think, you know, one of the, um, one of the challenges of the pandemic has just been, I think, I don't know how other publishers have done it if they've adapted like in terms of workflow systems, but we're still sort of treating it as though it's a temporary <laughs> situation. Mm -hmm. And so we haven't really established like really helpful tools for, for dealing with workflow. It's a lot of email is workflow. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, you sort of, you miss something, you overlook something and now it's late. And so you have to drop everything, you know, when it surfaces or when you're reminded of it. Um, and so there feels like there's a lot of scrambling that happens. Um, so hopefully that Dang will improve it. and get better, right? Um, we but, need like experts in workflow to come and train all of these companies yes. on like how to do remote pandemic workflow. Yeah. So someone should get on that. <laughs> Haley, what say you? Well, I wanted to know, I don't know if this is, if you'd know the answer to this, Kaylin, but it, has editing always been like this? Has it always been so overwhelming that the actual editing takes place at 10 o'clock at night when you're at home um, or is it like a modern world thing? Right. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I, so I've been at Candlewick for 17 years um, and it's a good question. I do feel like, you know, I have young children also. And so I'm like more aware of giving away that time to work. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the reading that I used to do, I would sort of naturally do outside of work hours because it's easier to, like, I used to be in the office. And so it's hard sometimes just to focus on like, I'm going to read a novel in an office space where there's, you know, people walking around and chatter. It's a pretty quiet office, to be honest. Like people will sometimes come in and be like, oh, it's like a library. I have to whisper. Um, so, you know, you can read, but it, I do find it is, is hard to do that really at the office. And so I've always kind of done some of that work. And I think editors generally probably do a lot of their like reading and editing outside of work just because it's easier to concentrate and then with the yeah, email becoming like just more and more oppressive um and that mm. does feel like that shift has really um been quite noticeable certainly in the pandemic but even before that it was just it's just become you know so much of how we all have to spend our days is just dealing with email mm -hmm. um but I do think having young children and realizing how much I'm not available for them is, is different and changes sort of my feelings about that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's hard to say how much is, is the job itself demanding more versus like my unwillingness to give as much, I suppose, you know, like are my mm -hmm. of priority. Um, and that's something yeah. I struggle with a lot because I do love working on novels so much 
that said, I also love my children quite a lot. And I, you know, I don't like missing, you know, or like shutting myself up in my office on the weekend, you know, um, is a very sad thing. Um, yeah. if I love the work that I'm doing while I'm in there. Um, so that has become a particular challenge, I think. And I would imagine that like, cause you've been like promoted a few times and like worked your way up the editorial ranks some because you're amazing and, and have worked so hard, but that comes with more responsibilities. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. And, um, yeah, as I said, I'm a slow reader. So I think, you know, it's, I, I will say again, I do feel very fortunate that there is such a humane approach at Candlewick. Um, you know, my boss is very sensitive to, and she would be like the first one to tell me like, prioritize yourself, prioritize your kids, prioritize your home life. Like, what can we do to help and like make this make sense for you? Um, so she's extremely supportive of that. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I am a slow reader. Um, and I think I have struggled <laughs> historically to set realistic limits for myself. And I think that what I'm seeing now in the pandemic is sort of, I'm not being the kind of editor for people that I've committed to that I want to be. And that's, that's devastating for me. Like that Mm -hmm. is just like, I, that can't be how I operate. You know, it's, I don't want to have signed someone up just to be able to say I've signed them up. I want to be able to work with them the way I want to work with them um, and give them that treatment that I feel like is part of why I signed them up. So to realize like, oh, I'm not actually being able, you know, not able to be that editor for these folks that feels awful. And so that's, I think where I'm seeing like my boundaries, like, okay, I need to course correct here because I'm not, I'm not doing a good job, you know, the way I want to. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's more a self-imposed limitation, I think. I hope it, I hope it um, comforts you to know that many writers feel the same way in the opposite direction. Like, oh, I promised this to my agent or I need to get this to my editor or I am supposed to be writing, but I can't even focus on that. And I swore that I would. And it's having a purpose, like just in general, like having ambition, having feeling like you have some sort of purpose along with your career that way can be so oppressive sometimes just because um, I think for a lot of people in publishing, a job can't just be a job because it represents so much more. Yeah. Because if it was just a job, like there's a lot that we wouldn't do in yeah. publishing or stand for, but because it is tied up with this higher purpose, um, we all put expectations mm. on ourselves. As yeah, as cheesy as it sounds like, I do feel like, yeah, there, we're, we're giving something so important to the world. And so that's another part of it too. It just feels like through my work, you know, I'm sort of leaving my mark and, and to pull back on that, you know, feels very selfish in a way that's, you know, (laughs) there's a lot to unpack there, I'm sure. But like, it's, it's, it's part of the struggle for me is it feels like I can keep doing good, you know, if I keep signing up books and and putting them out there, but there is only so much that I, I can do. Um, And so it's a constant effort to, to find that that healthy balance. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. It definitely sounds familiar. But I think it's also, again, like really comforting probably for authors or writers to hear um, that when your book goes out on submission and you haven't heard anything for a few months, especially now, because we're in this crazy time, um, that it is not about someone sitting there hating your book or going, oh, I just don't want to read that or snubbing you or anything like that. It really is just like they haven't gotten to that email yet because it is one of 800 other emails. Literally. (laughs) And (laughs) when you do get to the other side and you are an acquired author for an editor, you're grateful that you are prioritized above new submissions. I mean, I know that's crappy to hear if you're somebody who's trying to go out on submission but like it's good that you prioritize the people that you have already established relationships with and and acquire their books it's a good thing and that's I want the author that you know I've signed up to feel like they're you know they're my focus um and Mm -hmm. when I feel like I'm not giving them that experience um that's when I've started to really realize like okay this is not actually 
I mean, I suppose that's, that's what I struggle with, right? Is it, you know, is it better? <laughs> they're technically signed up and there, there's going to be a book sure. at the end of the day and maybe there wouldn't have been elsewhere. Right. That's where it's sometimes the relief of like, oh, there's an auction. And I know that even if I pass on this, it is going to be a book. Um, and mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's comfort in that. Um, Cause there's other editors at other publishers who do acquire books that way absolutely, and do not perhaps put as much into the interpersonal, intrapersonal, mm. interpersonal, Inter. I don't know, the, the relationship of nurturing the author and that suits some authors just fine. And that suits some editors just fine. And so, I mean, that's why I guess you get to know agents and they get to know you yeah. and try to understand what the relationship is going to be like. Right. Um, Cause there are definitely a lot of authors who I can think of who just to be published is enough and is what they want and scratches that itch, Mm -hmm. but you're probably not the editor for those. Right. And I don't want to necessarily become that. That's not what I'm interested in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, but there's so many, but there's tons of editors. So there's, there's an editor for every author out there for every, and every author who wants whatever experience that they're looking for. Right. And it, yeah, it's like a, a luxury, I think, to be in a position even where the experience is a factor. You know, you're sort of choosing your experience. Absolutely, um, that is a luxury. So, um, so I'm very aware of that as well. But yeah, I think you know, there's a certain kind of editor that I want to be, and I think especially during the pandemic, I felt like it's harder and harder to be that editor. Sure. And so, a lot of my struggles are are trying to find a way to still be that editor in the midst of this new reality that we're still in which doesn't negate the old pressures of the old reality either it's not like things got better in the before times and then now pandemic it's dragged yeah and exacerbated issues that were already there for sure yeah Mm. we should you know pivot to a happier note oh (laughs) this turn (laughs) well Lindsay, do you want to move on to the advice section Absolutely. So we always try to end our interviews talking about a sort of oft given piece of writing advice or a writing mantra or maybe like a writing myth. Um, So we've talked about uh, the advice to write every day. Uh, We had a really great conversation um, with our last guest about the myth that if you're not published by the time you're 30, you're an old crone and, and you've missed out on the best time of your writing life. So I wanted to talk to you about this idea that there is something very specific that editors want their writers to be doing. Like writers should be running their own self-promotion on Twitter. Writers should be doing pre-order campaigns. Writers should be like all of the shoulds that we writers feel. And that can be pre-acquisition, like you are looking for very specific types of writers. And if they would only jump through these hoops, then you would find them and sign them up. And it also can be like, yeah, like writers who are already acquired, maybe writers who are also like trying to continue having a working relationship with you and are like, this is not me talking about me, but like, just like, oh, it's time to like send something else to like, have I been a well-behaved Mm. author? Am I doing all of the things that a writer is supposed to be doing from an editorial standpoint? Will you talk about just sort of, I guess those are the expectations from an editor to a writer and just like, what do you think about all of that? Yeah. So I'm going to give a very candlelike answer. Um, It's the only one I know how to give. Sure. Um, I do think, I want to say this in a way that feels, you know, helpful, but I do think we as a company care a lot less than perhaps a lot of other companies about that aspect. Like we have authors who aren't on social media at all. And we have authors who don't like to go on tour or do school visits because they're not comfortable in front of people. And that's fine. You know, we really do try to support who a person is and play up their strengths, um, but not expect them to change who they are for us. I think with that though goes a desire, you know, a, a need for the author to understand that there's only so much a publisher can do. Even even if your book gets like you know the biggest push behind it that a publisher can give it, 
there's still so much that we can do. And so I think accepting that if you as an author aren't comfortable or willing or able to do certain things, like that might have an impact on your book. I don't think we as editors at Candlewick would feel disappointed in our authors, but I do think understanding that, especially nowadays, there are these expectations of performance. Um, and if, if for some reason that's not what you're interested in, we're fine with that as long as I think, you know, our authors understand that we can't always fill those gaps and make right. up for that. So as long as there's, you know, um, a healthy understanding of, of our limitations as your publisher, mm -hmm. then, you know, you do what you're comfortable doing. I've heard um, anecdotally, you know, I was on a panel where um, another editor spoke to pre-acquisitions back, you know, doing a PNL, um, a factor on their PNL would be how many like social media followers someone has. And there's like a monetary value for certain brackets. So like if you have X number of people, that means like a, you know, value on the PNL. I like barely will Google people when I sign them up, you know, like it's, it's so not how we evaluate our authors. Um, in fact, I might sometimes be like, Oh, like this person I signed up has like a huge, like Twitter following, you know, it's sort of like a pleasant surprise. Like, Hey, right. maybe we can like do yeah. something with that right. rather than like, we need to have that in place or know that you're going to get there, yeah. you know? So that's, I, I don't know how my colleagues in sales and marketing would answer the same question, <laughs> but from the editor side of things, it really is not a deciding factor in the same way. And it's certainly not a monetarily valued factor in the way it sounds like it might be other places. But I do think more and more, there is probably more being asked of authors, mm -hmm. um, more interfacing and, you know, just being, being a, a, a public figure mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and I think we're very understanding if people aren't comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. But I do think it probably can help. Um, yeah, there might be a trade off there. Yeah, there right. might be a trade off there. And so I think, you know, we're willing to work with our authors as they are. But I think, you know, it's important for folks to know that if they're not willing or comfortable doing certain things, you know, there are opportunities that are going to be missed. Um, sure, sure. But yeah, so I would say for us, it's just really not how we're evaluating. Um, like how desirable an author is for us. Like that component is, if anything, like a pleasant surprise or like a bonus, yeah. you know, rather than like a fundamental aspect of how we're evaluating so authors. What, what kinds of things, I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier that like, you don't know what you're looking for until it lands in your inbox. Yeah. What advice can you give to writers who are getting ready to like, go out on submission or, um, getting ready to like send you something else or whatever, like what, what can you say to them? Like, like emotionally <laughs> soothe them, do some of your care work here. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. I think I find one of my favorite experiences in terms of reading submissions is when I feel like I'm reading something that an author really cares about, that it's not written to get published even necessarily. Um, sometimes those things do go hand in hand. Like you feel like, oh, this is great for the market. And also I feel like this author just lives and breathes this story. Mm -hmm. um, but when I feel like this is such a real human experience, I feel like I could meet this character in real life. Like, I feel like they have captured on the page, something that is so relatable, even if it, like I have no actual shared, you know, mm -hmm. experiences with the character, what they're going through, who they are, their identities, anything like that. But it, there's something so perfectly real and human about it that mm -hmm. will sort of speak um, to your heart as a reader. That is one of my favorite experiences. And so I feel like, and that's also, you know, like what I'm going to be looking for as a Candlewick editor. If I'm another editor, another house where I am doing these PLs and I'm looking for that elevator pitch and prioritizing those aspects of story, this advice will probably not apply. That said, if you are a writer who can let yourself write those stories that you just care so passionately about, that's the coolest thing to read. You know, it's not the one that's trying to chase a trend or, you know, satisfy three things on someone's manuscript wish list. You know, it's like, this is the story that I just needed to tell. Um, and that's who I want to follow. You know, that's the story. That's the world I want to disappear into is the one that just feels like it was vital for this author to write this story. So there's like, even like a, a craft 
value that comes out of books that writers really care about that maybe is not tangible, but that you can, like, you can tell, like, or like they, they sing in a different way. They sing in a different way. And it's interesting. We were talking earlier about, you know, you feel like you're at this stage in your career where there's more freedom to kind of write the stories you want to write. And it's like, gosh, I wish everyone felt like they could do that from the jump. You know, like I wish, and I understand, I'm not so naive that I feel like, you know, that's my advice. Just write, you know, your passion project and it'll all work out. Um, but wouldn't that be great? Like, wouldn't it be great if your passion project is the one that gets you published? Um, and so as much as it makes sense for you to follow that passion, like do like, that's, what's going to like stand out from all the others, you know, that are just trying first and foremost to get published. It's like, no, I want to feel like this story had to be told. You had to tell this story yeah. and no one else could, and write no one else you. could write it, but you. Yeah. That makes sense. I think you just defined what voice is. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, we solved it. <laughs> yeah because it's that like intangible feeling that you get from a story that it matters to someone and that it's like so specific to this writer yeah absolutely yeah, yeah that is voice well there you go yeah. <laughs> I just want to know if we have time um yeah, I just, I really want to know from an editor's point of view, like what are things, what makes a, an author really great to work with? And what, so what, like if you had to, if you could give authors like a, you know, this is, this is the way to, to just be a great author to work with. What would you say to them? She must have red hair. <laughs> <laughs> Her name must be Lindsay Eager. <laughs> I think, you know, sense of humor. I don't know if that's like for me specifically, but like, I just feel like the publishing (laughs) guys, publishing is a sad, dark place. You know, it's not always, you know, a a delight uh, as much as we all wish it were. And there are moments absolutely of just pure delight and joy. And that's why we are all doing it um, many times, but like, it's not always that. Mm -hmm. And there are struggles and there are delays and there are, you know, crushing realities. And I think, so a sense of humor, but also just like a humanness to it, you know, just like a real, like understanding that we are all like people doing the best we can. Um, which is not to say you shouldn't, you know, have expectations and, and push and advocate. Absolutely. But I think, with that, like just, oh, I think, okay, here we go. This is something that always surprises me. Like when our authors treat or even agents, you know, treat the editorial relationship as like an adversarial one. Mm. That's always so astonishing to me. And again, I don't know if it speaks to sort of my own experience working where I work or my naivete, my Pollyanna-ishness, but we are on the same team. You know, we are, we are, all trying to do the best we can with the book um, and, and to sort of realize that and approach it that way. And so even if there are frustrations or things that are disappointing or questions, you know, things that seem confusing or mysterious, um, that it's not because we're trying to like pull one over or like get away with it's, you know, um, I'm happy to engage and answer questions and, you know, um, confront, you know, reality, but, you know, we're, we're, your support people. We're not, we're not there trying to take advantage or trick um, us. Yeah, or trick or yeah. Or steal our book and right. Yeah, absolutely. Twist it to your dark purposes. Um, and so I think, you know, a, a real sense of a sense of humor, a, a sense of humanity, and then just a sense of like being on the same team. Like we're all on the same side. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't be unhappy and like, you know, have conversations about like this is disappointing or I don't understand why we're doing this, but like not because were the bad guys out to um, make your life or your book worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Every, every cog in the publishing machine or most of them is a, is a human person (laughs) is like a, yeah, is a person. Yeah. The machine is really loves books (laughs) who, who all, yeah. All love books. Yeah. And a sense of humor. You don't just mean like cracking amazing jokes in your email, but like maybe a sense of, brevity about when things go wrong to be able to discuss it in a way that or just even like understanding that 
things can go really yeah. wrong. Yeah. So it's definitely, you know, I think someone who has like a crackling wit, that's wonderful. Sure. A great bonus. Um, and something I would personally enjoy very much, but yeah, I suppose it means just there's an optimism at the end of the day, you know, there's just like mm. fundamentally, there's just a, a little bit of like, you know what, there's perspective, there's optimism. Um, it doesn't mean you always have to be happy. It doesn't mean, right. you know, you have to roll with every punch. Um, but it does mean that there is this sort of greater sense of yeah, resilience. resilience. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would imagine that that would be something that you would look for in an author, just because you would then know if there is bad news or if there is like, if things don't work out exactly the way the writer wants, you know, that you are not going to be carrying a lot of the author's emotions, negative emotions, not that you wouldn't already, but you're not going to be taking on this devastation um, because you're going to have a writer who under, like at least understands that there are ups and downs yeah. and, can, and, and can weather them with you instead of you worrying about them at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Like, oh. And I understand, like, you know, some people are going to be, you know, more, need more of that, you know, than others. And that's fine. And I absolutely like accept um, that that's part of my role here. But, <laughs> <laughs> Not naming any names no. um, or thinking of any specific redheaded authors, but um, you know, I, I do think even so, not even necessarily in terms of the performance of the book, um, but even just the editorial process itself. As yeah. I said, like it's so intimate and it's so personal, um, and to know that I can be the, the way the dynamic, the working dynamic with someone, like if you don't have any sort of sense of humor about the process and you take it so seriously that, you know, then I feel like I'm, I, I'm going to sort of clam up and not know when I can joke or even just like throw out, okay, this is like wild and like may not work at all. But like, what if, you know, we did blah, blah, blah. And right. just like, obviously like, don't do specifically that because I'm right. very limited as an editor. Like I'm not the writer, but maybe that unlocks something, you know? Right. And if I feel like you you just you know this is like a serious business and like what are you doing with your out of left field suggestions you know I think it would really inhibit the working relationship and the dynamic and how I would how I would edit so I but think there's no abstract thinking yeah, to yeah. um but yeah it's, mm, that makes sense it totally does yeah, and something that Lindsay and I talk about a lot is how sometimes when you become a professional author, writer, you can lose the joy and the fun mm -hmm. for like periods of time and you can get really serious and heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, and I, it's, we're always trying to like remind ourselves like, no, we, we actually do this because we love it and it's playful. Like 99% yeah. of it is just playing around. It really is. And you're, you're world building and character building. And it's, you know, I, I want to be very careful that it's, you know, I'm being very clear that it's not that you just have to roll with every punch and you can't be disappointed when Kirkus slams your book or whatever might or, happen or advocate, yeah. or advocate for, for yourself, yeah, different or treatment or attention, like absolutely speak up, but sort of, yeah, doing it with this sort of greater perspective on like, at the end of the day, we are all people who like love books and yeah. we love characters and we love kids you know or yeah. let's not forget at the end of the day like who these books are for yeah. right and if yeah. if we lose sight of that um yeah I think the whole process is just a lot there's harder. there's so much like gatekeeping in the industry that makes it feel very much like going through levees of a dam or like thresholds like okay finish mm. manuscript check and then like acquire agent and then submission and editor that it sometimes you forget the flexibility of the process yeah mm, yeah like so I can imagine once you get to that point if you're somebody who thinks about it in this very gatekeeper way or has that experience which it totally is then yeah then it all just feels like more levels and thresholds to get through right. instead of feeling like you're developing a, a working relationship with your editor and your publisher it's just yeah gates to crash and and doors to get through right right which it is in some ways, like yeah. that's the industry uh, culture. 
Yeah. And it's hard, I think, for editors to have that perspective sometimes of, you know, like it's always surprising to hear how authors think of us, right? Because we know our humanity because we're living it. And to, I think we forget, you know, that like, oh, we are intimidating to some people. Like that's to me, like hilarious thing to think that like I'm intimidating to anyone. Um, (laughs) It's hilarious. It's also very sad, but you know, it's, I think that's part of why I love going to like the SCBWI conferences, Mm. for example, where it's like, I am just here talking to people and I'm accessible and I'm showing my humanity to people who like maybe don't just naturally assume I'm a human, you know, with like compassion and empathy um, to sort of get to showcase that. Um, I really enjoy like, look, yeah, no, we're, we're here. We're people. We're nice. Um, we might still turn you down and that is actually very hard for us, Sure, but you know, but this we is are, not a devil wears Prada yeah. scenario. Right. Mm. I am not fashionable at all. So steak, <laughs> that's you <laughs> yelling for your lunch. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's true. You are Thank you so much for listening to Story of the Book. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and keep writing. Bye!